Tonight we begin in Matthew chapter 23, and uh, I hope to make it all the way through the chapter this evening. Uh, Even though it's a pretty long chapter, at the same time, it really has a strong, coherent theme. It's, It's a unit within itself. And so I hope we can cover the entire chapter together this evening. I I do want you to know and be aware that this chapter, I think, has a great danger in it. In this chapter, uh, Jesus rebukes in the strongest way you can imagine the scribes and the Pharisees. It's really remarkable the way that he confronts them and how strongly he rebukes them to the crowds that listen to him. But here's the great danger. The great danger is that as we study a chapter like this this evening, that you think of it purely in the terms of being other people. Those people are like that. Those people have to worry about this. And what I want to remind you is that he's talking about things that we deal with as well. So yes, it would probably be very easy for you to think of exaggerated examples of each one of these things that we're going to talk about tonight that that aren't yourself. But understand, in the small ways that you and I are like these things that Jesus is going to rebuke and condemn tonight, we need to be honest with ourselves and ask God to deal with us about. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Jesus spoke to these groups. Now, notice, he's not speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. What does verse 1 tell you? Verse 1 tells you, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples. He's speaking about the scribes and the Pharisees, but he's speaking most directly to the crowd and to his disciples. Now, of course, the hardened opponents of Jesus, this rising theme that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew of more and more confrontation and conflict with the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, all of that sort of culminates, it peaks out, it ends here in this chapter 23, at least from Jesus' side. Of course, they heard what Jesus said, but in a sense, Jesus was finished speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Instead, his main intent here is not directly to rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees, even though he does that, but his main intent is to warn the multitudes and the crowds about the scribes and the Pharisees. It's as if this. You might say, and I don't want to put this too strongly because I think I'm exaggerating just a bit here, but I think you'll get what I'm talking about. Jesus has given up on the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, again, don't take that literally. I just mean it after a fashion, in a sense. But in a sense, you could say he's given up on the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, now I'm just going to warn the multitudes about them. Now, again, very interesting when we think about the Pharisees in the day. I came across something fascinating written by William Barclay, uh, telling how the Talmud describes seven different types of Pharisees. And these are the seven different types of Pharisees that William Barclay says the Talmud describes. Number one, there is the shoulder Pharisee. He's the one who wore all his good deeds and his righteousness on his shoulder for everybody to see. Then there was the 
wait a little Pharisee. He was always intending to do good deeds, but he could always find a reason for doing them later and not now. Then there was the bruised or the bleeding Pharisee. This man was so holy that he would turn his head away from any woman seen in public, and therefore he was constantly bumping into things and tripping and therefore injuring himself. There was the hump-backed Pharisee who was so humble that he walked bent over and barely lifting his feet so that everybody could see just how humble he was. There was the always counting Pharisee who was always counting up his good deeds and he believed that he put God in debt to him for all the good that he had done. Then there was the fearful Pharisee who did good because he was terrified that God would strike him with judgment if he did not do good. Then finally, the seventh category, there was the God-fearing Pharisee who really loved God and did goods to please the God that he loved. Now notice this, the the, the Talmud says this in Jesus' own day. In Jesus' own day, the people recognized how corrupt and how self-righteous the Pharisees were as a whole. Yes, one out of seven of them was the God-fearing one, but among the majority of them, they were religious hypocrites. And so in this chapter, Jesus will rebuke them. Again, not speaking directly to them, speaking to the crowd, to his disciples, and he will rebuke them because he loves the crowds and because he loves them. But as much as anything, you could say that this is Jesus's final statement, final estimation of the religious leaders who will ultimately be responsible for sending him to the cross. So what does he say? Did you see it there in verse Three, he says, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. Jesus told us that respect was due to the scribes and the Pharisees, not because of their conduct, but because they sat in Moses' seat. That's in verse 2. They should be respected because they held an office of authority and one that was ordained by God. The the word of God should not lose authority with the people of God because of the wickedness of the men of God. I hope you can make that distinction in your own mind, right? Listen, it's very disturbing, it's very discouraging to any of us when a man of God, especially if it's a man of God who has brought us the word of God, turns out to be a man full of compromise or hypocrisy or wickedness in some way. But listen, determine in your heart that you will never lose your faith in the word of God because one of the messengers of the word turns out to be wicked or faulty. You see, as bad as these scribes and Pharisees were, they sat in Moses' seat. Now, in that day, a synagogue would often have a stone seat at the front of the congregation where the authoritative teacher sat, and that was considered to be Moses' seat, because the law of Moses came forth from that seat. And so he says, Listen to them because they sit in Moses' seat, but don't do what they do. What do they do? Verse 4, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. The scribes and the Pharisees were bad examples for a lot of reasons, but the first one that Jesus mentioned there was because they expected more of others than they did of themselves. Here's a great big burden, and I'm going to put it on your shoulders. I'm not going to bear it, nor am I going to help you bear it. 
but I'm going to put a great big burden upon your shoulders. They set heavy burdens on others, yet they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. That's a pretty awesome way, and I mean awesome in a negative way, to describe the core of somebody's religious teaching, a heavy burden. The burden of the religious leaders, it contrasts very sharply to Jesus' message, right? What did Jesus say about his message? He said that his burden was light and his yoke was easy. That's in Matthew chapter 11. These religious leaders were burden bringers. Jesus was a burden taker. I would say that this first accusation against these religious leaders could apply to many religious leaders today. Many of them teach as if the essence of Christianity was a burdensome set of rules to follow. But but the early church rejected this legalism, right? It, It insisted that obedience to the law of Moses was not a foundation for the Christian life. Do you remember what Peter told the legalists in Acts chapter 15? He said this, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? That was the spirit of the Pharisees, to put that yoke, to put that burden upon them. It's the spirit of Jesus to lift it. So Jesus says, be warned about the scribes and the Pharisees. Secondly, he says, starting in verse 5, notice this but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Now notice this, in verse 5, Jesus gets to the core of their hypocrisy. Somebody would protest and say, well look, we see the Pharisees do so many good and righteous things, Jesus. But what do they do? All their works they do to be seen by men, Jesus said in verse 5. You know, I saw a pretty dramatic example. No, actually, I'm going to take that back. I didn't see it. It was described to me by a fellow pastor who told me a story of one time there he was on the streets of Jerusalem, and there was a poor man there, and poor men beg in Jerusalem, just like they do any other big city there. But especially they do it in Jerusalem because it is a very high ethic among the Orthodox Jew to give charity to the poor. And so they know there's a pretty good living to be made by asking for charity. And so this man was begging, and this Christian pastor, and apparently it was clear that he was a Christian, at least that he was an American and probably a Christian. Here he was, and he passed him by, and he refused to give money to him when he asked for it. And so there was an Orthodox man. You could tell he was Orthodox by the way he was dressed and the hat he was wearing and his big beard, just sort of obviously so. And this man, full of anger. The, the, the pastor who saw it described it to me as, as virtually rage. He stared at my pastor friend. He took a little wad of money in his hand and he stuffed it into the hands of the beggar. Never once looking at the beggar, but looking at the pastor friend. In other words, he did it purely to say to my pastor friend, listen, you are a corrupt 
wicked man for not giving this. He was doing it, very plainly, to be seen by men. I have another very clear memory about something that a church did in a community that I was a pastor. And, and I, I bring it up not to condemn them, but I just think it was wrong what they did. This church very, very generously decided to give a gift financially to another struggling church in the city, a, a church that was struggling in the midst of a building project, and they really needed a gift of money to just sort of get the project started again and completed. And isn't that a wonderful thing? For a church to give money to another church in the community to do that. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. But it was how they did it that I thought was such a mistake. You know how they did it? They did it by calling a press conference and by having one of those giant checks printed up, you know, and they hand the giant check to the pastor and such. And as I saw it, I said, oh, please, please, don't do your good works to be seen of men. Do them to be seen of God. It's a beautiful thing that you're doing, a wonderful thing. Just let it be between the congregations and not in front of the press. Now, the way that this translated back in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, if you notice verse 5, he says, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. The, the, the phylacteries were small leather boxes with tiny scrolls with scriptures on them, and they were tied to the arm and to the head with leather straps. You can see them in Jerusalem today. If you want to see guys wearing phylacteries, go to the Western Wall where the Jews love to pray, and you'll see men with phylacteries on. Well, what would they do? To show that they were particularly spiritual, they would make these phylacteries somewhat large, both on their head and on thing, because obviously, you know, you've got more of the Bible on your head. If you've got a bigger phylactery on your forehead or on your more of your Bible that hand, if there's a bigger phylactery on your hand. And then what would they do? They would also enlarge the borders of their garments. These borders of the garments, these special fringes that you can see today on sort of a shawl or a scarf that Orthodox Jews will often wear today. Again, it was an attempt to show I'm more spiritual. You see, it was very natural for these religious leaders to believe that broader phylacteries and larger borders on their garments showed them to be more spiritual. It's interesting because the wearing of the phylactery or the special borders on the garments, you could say that that was obedience to a couple commands that you find on the law of Moses that said, listen, keep the law of God always on your mind and always at hand and wear these distinguishing things that will mark you out as my people. But even if you were to say, okay, it's a good thing to wear a phylactery or to wear a special border on your garment, the use of those things to promote an image of being super spiritually, that is the fault of human sinfulness, not of the command itself. What more did they do? Look at verse 6 and verse 7, as a matter of fact. It says that they love the best places in the synagogues. They love the greetings in the marketplaces. They weren't content to display their supposed spirituality. They loved it when people admired their supposed spirituality. They coveted the seats of honor at banquets and at the synagogue, and they loved the honoring titles such as rabbi and father. I want you to notice a word that's used there in verse 6 and emphasize it, where it says, they love the best places. Listen, somebody may give you an honored place. Somebody may give you a comfortable thing, but don't you set your heart on it. Don't you love it. And that's exactly what they did. And they loved the titles that people gave to them. Look at verse 8 where it says, And you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you 
are all brethren. Jesus warned his people that they should not imitate the scribes and the Pharisees at this point. His followers should always remember, look at that phrase in verse 8, that you are all brethren. Isn't that important? Isn't that important for Christian leaders to remember? Sometimes Christian leaders today can get an over-exalted sense of who they are and what God has given them to do. Please remember, Christian leader, you are all brethren, and that no one should be exalted above others by titles that are either demanded or received. You know, sometimes this happens in the church. Sometimes people take titles and invest too much into them, too much meaning, too much exaltation, too much importance. And we need to be careful that we need to be careful with the more obvious titles. Sometimes people take the title apostle. I don't know how you take the title apostle and not be puffed up. They take the title prophet. But but even with more biblical titles like pastor, something like that can go to a person's head. And we must watch out for that. Matter of fact, look at what Jesus says in 8, 9, and 10. He says, do not be called rabbi. And then he says, do not call anyone on earth your father. And then he says, do not be called teachers. Jesus warned his listeners and us against giving anyone inappropriate honor. Now, you may have a father or a teacher in a normal human sense, but you should not regard them in a sense that gives them excessive spiritual honor or authority. Listen, there are people in my life that God has used in a tremendous way to influence me biblically, to be teachers in my life. But listen, I do not yield my conscience unto them. Uh, If I could just say, somebody who's really had an influence upon me and I I think has been a, a, a tremendous teacher in my life is Pastor Chuck Smith. But I can tell you with all the integrity of my heart, I do not believe a single thing in the Bible just because Chuck Smith teaches it. I need to be persuaded of it upon my own heart, right? And not just say, well, that's what Pastor Chuck believes. It's good enough for me. No, I have to be able to answer it with the integrity of my own heart. Now, I I thank God that we're in agreement on so many of those things. But listen, you can't yield excessive spiritual honor or authority to another person. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, In the church of Christ, all titles and honors which exalt men and give occasion for pride are here forbidden. Now I have to say, though, this is sort of a problem text. What did Jesus say? Don't be called rabbi. Don't call anybody on earth your father. And don't be called teachers. Yet Jesus was called rabbi. Matthew chapter 26, uh, John chapter 1, John chapter 3. Paul called himself a father, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 2. Paul called other Christians his children, Galatians chapter 4. And Paul called himself a teacher, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And so what is he talking about here? I think what he's doing is forbidding, number one, the love of such titles and hunting after them. And secondly, he's forbidding the kind of authority that would go with such a title to excess, the sinful excess of such a title. Listen, I like the idea that used to be promoted in churches. 
there, there were some churches, certain denominations that would do this in days gone by, and I can't say I've ever been in a church where I've seen this happen, but it would be pretty cool. This is what they would do. The pastor would teach from a pulpit Bible. Now, you know what I mean by a pulpit Bible? I'm talking about one of those huge, ancient, leather-bound things that weighs so much. It's so heavy. You know, it weighs about as much as a medium-sized dog. You know, there it is. It's big like that. And what they would do is this, is that when it came time for the pastor to preach, the elders or the deacons or some officials in the church would actually carry the Bible down the center aisle while everybody stood, he would place it upon the pulpit, and then the pastor would go up and preach from that very Bible. Now look, I suppose something like that could be a little bit showy, a little bit theatrical, but what it communicates is good. What it communicates is this, is that the authority is not fundamentally in the man. The authority is in the word of God. That's how everybody should be. And collecting titles or or insisting upon titles or having an excessive love or attraction to them, that is something that takes an authority unto yourself, which you do not. I tell you, this command is often ignored. It's violated today in the way that people receive and give titles like prophet, apostle, reverend, most reverend, and so on. It's also seen in the expected etiquette for the closing a letter to the Pope. I ran across this some years ago. Do you know how you're supposed to close a letter to the Pope? You know, if you're writing in proper etiquette. Listen to this. Prostrate at the feet of your holiness and imploring the favor of its apostolic benediction, I have the honor to be very holy father with the deepest veneration of your holiness the most humble and obedient servant and son or daughter i regard that as being over the top i don't know about you that's just too much and i don't think i would ever have an occasion to write a letter to the pope but if i did i would just sign it sincerely david guzik i mean this is just it's it's piling title upon title, honor upon honor. And this goes very much against the spirit of what Jesus commanded here. Now, as way of contrast, look at what Jesus says starting at verse 11. He says, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, normally, people estimate greatness by how many people serve and honor them. Jesus reminded his followers that in his kingdom, it was going to be different, and that we should estimate greatness by how we serve and honor others. Now, since Jesus was truly the greatest among them, Jesus was really speaking of himself as a servant here, was he not? I mean, think about it. What does he say in verses 11 and 12? He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Who was the greatest person there among in that particular scene? It was Jesus himself. And what was he? He was their servant. He was describing himself. And it's unfortunate that many of the followers of Jesus imitate the leadership philosophy and style of the scribes and the Pharisees more than they do the style of Jesus. So what did he say in verse 12? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, I regard that as an absolute spiritual law. If you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. If you humble yourself, 
you will be exalted. I regard an absolute spiritual law just along the same lines as God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But here's how it works. That promise, though it is absolutely true, is sometimes only known by the measure of eternity. There are some very proud people on this earth who will not be humbled until the life after. And there are some very low, seemingly insignificant people on this earth who will not be exalted until the world to come. But eternity will settle everything, even if it is not settled on this earth. Now, starting with verse 13, we have a section that is known as the seven, or sometimes the eight, woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. Why do I say seven or eight? You'll find out in a minute as we get to verse 14. But what I find fascinating is to make a contrast between these woes and the eight beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told you how to be blessed. Here he'll tell you how to be cursed. How to have blessed are you pronounced on you. That's the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. But in this particular section, Jesus is saying how to be a miserable person, how to have woe pronounced upon you. And please understand, he speaks harshly here between now and the end of the chapter, but it wasn't the language of personal irritation. Jesus wasn't saying, you know, I've had it up to here with these scribes and Pharisees. Let me give it to them. Just like an angry frustrated mother might kind of go over the edge and talk to one of her children. No, 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 that's not it. This is divine warning and condemnation. It's very much in the line of the kind of woes or or announcements of condemnation found in the prophets such as Isaiah and Habakkuk. The, the, The tone is of direct warning and condemnation. Before I get into verse 13, let me share with you one other thing. Interesting statement from one of our favorite commentators, the Puritan, John Trapp. This is what he says. He says, St. Jerome was called Fulman Ecclesiasticum, the church's thunderbolt. How much more might this be attributed to Christ? How terribly doth he hear thunderstrike these stupid Pharisees? Well, that's John Trapp for you. He sees Jesus here hurling thunderbolts, and he's going to hurl seven or eight thunderbolts at the scribes and the Pharisees in the following verses, beginning now with verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Literally, Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees by calling them hypocrites, which literally has the idea of an actor, somebody playing a part. Listen, you scribes and Pharisees, you have a spiritual image, but that spiritual image is only that. It's only an image. It's a mask that covers your true identity. And what do you do in this true identity? Verse 13 tells us that you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. These religious leaders kept people from the kingdom of heaven by making human traditions and human religious rules more important than God's word. This was clearly seen in the way that they opposed and rejected Jesus. If they had opened the kingdom of heaven to men, they would have welcomed and received Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, right? If you're open to the kingdom of heaven, you're open to Jesus, 
but the way that they opposed him and rejected him was evidence that they shut the kingdom of heaven to men. And notice what it says in verse 13. You neither go in yourselves, you're not going to heaven, Jesus said, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. It's a bad thing for somebody to not go to heaven, but it's far worse to prevent another person from entering in. And that's exactly what they were doing. I found an interesting comment by Adam Clark on this verse. He says that in ancient times, the rabbis carried a key, which was the symbol or emblem of knowledge. And Jesus is basically saying, listen, rabbi, that key that you carry to symbolize the knowledge about God and his kingdom, that key is useless. You don't use it to open the door of the kingdom of heaven for yourself, and you use it to lock the door against other people. Now, what's the next woe? Verse 14. Now, I don't know about the Bible that you have in front of you, but many Bibles, many translations of the Bible, I should say, do not include this verse or they have it in the margin. Why? Well, I'll let commentator D.A. Carson explain this. He says this, verse 14 must be taken as an interpolation. In other words, something that was added to the text. Derived from Mark 12.40 and Luke 20.47. This is made clear not only from its absence from the best and earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, but from the fact that the manuscripts that do include it do not agree on where to put it. Some put it before, some put it after verse 14. In other words, it seems to be fairly certain that Matthew did not have this verse in his original text. However, do not despair. It's in Mark chapter 12, and it's in Luke chapter 20. We know that Jesus said this, and probably an overzealous scribe added this into an early copy, and it got added and copied over and over again. So I'm going to read the verse as it belongs in this because this is biblical. This is from the Bible, though whether or not it belongs at this particular place in the Gospel of Matthew, that's under some debate. But what's the verse say? Now, you understand why I was saying either seven or eight woes? Okay. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. You see, using clever and dishonest dealing, the scribes and the Pharisees stole widows' houses. They were careful to cover it up in the name of good business or stewardship. But in the end, the widow lost her house and the Pharisee had it. And then he says, verse 14, For a pretense you make long prayers. Their long, falsely spiritual prayers were used to cultivate a spiritual image and often for the sake of bringing in big donations. And what does Jesus say? Verse 14, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. The greatness of their sin meant that they would receive a greater condemnation than others would endure. Do you understand what this teaches us by principle? And this isn't the only place in the New Testament where this principle is taught, but it's the one right in front of us here tonight. That not all suffering in hell will be equal. 
There will be some people who receive a greater condemnation. Now look, please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to imply for a moment that anybody will have it good in hell. Everybody will be in misery. Everybody will be in agony. But I think some will receive a worse condemnation than others. I think that these words demonstrate to us that there are degrees of punishment in hell just as there will be degrees of glory in heaven. And just as there will be nobody sad or unhappy in heaven, there will be nobody happy or good in hell. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Do you see what they would do? They would travel land and sea to win one proselyte. Their zeal and evangelism did not prove that they were right with God. These religious leaders went to great lengths to win others, but they brought them to the darkness and not to the light. Paul had much the same idea in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, where he observed that some of the Jewish people of his day had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so what would they do? They they would go across land and sea to win one proselyte. But by the way, the word proselyte there, it's just a transliteration of a Greek word, proselutos, which means one who has approached or has drawn near. The the, the proselyte was somebody who was a Gentile full convert to Judaism. Not just a God-fearer who was a convert to the moral law of Judaism, but not the ceremonial law, such as circumcision. No, the proselyte was the full convert. It's very interesting. There's interesting ancient evidence that in the first century AD, the Pharisees and other Jews had a real missionary zeal. But what would they do? When they would win somebody to Judaism, they would make him twice as much a son of hell as themselves. Though their great energy, they could win some, but it was to no lasting good to the people who were won. They didn't turn people to God. They turned people to their particular sect. Please understand, Jesus didn't criticize the fact of the Pharisees' energetic missionary efforts. No, He criticized the results of it. And what was the results? These converts tended to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. They became twice the son of hells as the Pharisee themselves. And so Jesus condemned them. Next one, rebuke number four, woe number four, starting at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it, fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now listen, out of obedience to God, they refused to swear by the name of God. That was in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Yet what they did 
is they constructed an elaborate system of oaths, some of them which were binding and some of them which were not. One commentator explains this very well. He says that to the Jew, an oath was absolutely binding so long as it was a binding oath. Now, I don't know if this is the same in every culture, but in the American culture that I grew up in, when a little child wants to say something but but not tell the truth, he crosses his fingers and he sticks them behind his back. And he says, okay, I'm speaking and I'm telling you something, but I'm really not telling you the truth because my fingers are crossed and that gives me permission to lie. The Pharisees had constructed an elaborate system which was the equivalent of crossing your fingers and sticking it behind your back. Well, I can make an oath, but it's not a binding oath. Of course, if it was a binding oath, I would be obliged to keep it. But because of the careful way that I construct my words, I don't have to keep my oath. And Jesus rebuked this. He rebuked their clever ways of saying, well, I'll swear by the gift upon the altar, but I won't swear upon the altar itself. I'll swear by the temple. I won't swear by the one who's in the temple. On and on and on and all the complex constructions that they had. No, instead, Jesus said, every oath is binding and God holds the oath maker to account even if they excuse themselves. Going on to the next woe, number five, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Did you notice how Jesus described describes how meticulously these men tithed. They tithed so carefully that they would tithe from the little seeds and the herbs that they brought out of the little gardens at their homes. Their tithing was careful, it was noteworthy, but it was hypocritical because it served to soothe the guilt they had of the neglect of the weightier matters of the law. You know, it is possible and common to be distracted with trivial matters while a lost world is perishing. That's exactly what the Pharisees were guilty of, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now notice, when he says the weightier matters of the law, he's not talking about the more difficult aspects or the harder aspects. He's talking about the most central or the most decisive aspects of the law. And these were the things they were neglecting. And I find it very interesting right there in verse 23, he tells us what the more central aspects to the law are. Did you notice that? He says, justice and mercy and faith. I think this reminds us of the great phrase in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Do you remember that? He has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he requires. And it's almost as if Jesus is echoing or has in mind Micah chapter 6, verse 8, when he says these. Listen, what is God looking for in us? For justice, for mercy, and faith. It's a very important principle. These were the central aspects of the law. And there's the Pharisee, there's the scribe, being so careful in the very smallest measure to tithe everything, but he's neglecting justice, he's neglecting mercy, and he's neglecting faith, and Jesus calls him on it. Now listen, this is very, very important. 
as Jesus says here in verse 24, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's a very humorous illustration Jesus used. Don't you agree? Here's a man carefully filtering, you could consider him filtering his wine or his drink through a cheesecloth or something like that. He goes, oh, I must do this because maybe a little bug got into my wine and I don't want to drink it. After all, the bug isn't kosher. It hasn't been bled in a kosher way. I don't want to drink a little gnat. And so he strains out the gnat. Oh, good, I found a gnat. I'm not going to swallow a gnat. And then, of course, very humorously, Jesus says, but you're swallowing a whole camel instead. You see what Jesus is getting at? Jesus is talking about the man who has completely lost his sense of proportion. Listen, this is important, friends. Every aspect of the word of God and the commands of God is important. There's not a single thing that's not unimportant, but all things are not equally important. There are core things And if you want to go off on one particular hobby horse, one particular direction, don't you ever lose your anchor to the weightier matters of the law. You know, you think about all the things that people think about today in regard to their own personal holiness. Can I smoke cigarettes or not smoke cigarettes? Can I drink alcohol or can I not drink alcohol? Can I dance or can I not dance? Can I do this or can I not do that? And listen, all of those are valid questions, and I don't mean to make light of those questions. I just mean to say this. Just keep them in perspective. Isn't it possible that we could be just like the scribes and the Pharisees here? Here's the question. Was it bad for the scribes and the Pharisees to tithe so meticulously? No, it was not bad. But what was bad was that they put all their focus, all their attention on one of those lesser matters and they ignored the weightier matters of the law. Look, this should not be us. And if God has given you a particular passion for some particular area, a particular thing that you really feel like you need to be doing and a particular focus, great, great. But always keep it in proportion Keep it in perspective. That's what the religious leaders did not do. They lost their sense of proportion. They lost their sense of perspective. Now verse 6. Excuse me, verse 25. It's the sixth woe. He says here, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. The scribes and the Pharisees were satisfied with a superficial cleansing and the appearance of righteousness. That was fine with them, just to appear righteous. They just wanted the outside to look good. They didn't care about the inside. And on the inside, they were full of extortion. They were full of self-indulgence. Man, might I say that this is what I see in so much of contemporary Christianity, especially in the Christian environment in which I grew up in, which was in Southern California. Now listen, Californian culture, or might I say most specifically, Southern California culture, exaggerates a tendency that I see all over the world, but it's exaggerated in Southern California, and it's just this. It's the tendency to be more concerned with image than reality. 
I don't have to be a good Christian or a godly man. I just need to have the image of a good Christian. The image of a godly man. As long as I have that, that's okay. Listen, that didn't begin in the heyday of Southern California. That was back in the days of the scribes and the Pharisees. But listen, we can't make ourselves blind to it. This is something that we, in our culture, we deal with very, very strongly. Now, what did Jesus say? Listen, was Jesus against having an exterior of godliness? No, no, no. But what does he say? Look at verse 26. First, cleanse the inside of the dish and cup, that the outside of them may be clean also. Jesus did not call them to choose between inner righteousness or outer righteousness. Could you imagine that? Jesus saying, okay, you got to make your choice now. Do you want to look righteous on the outside or do you want to be righteous on the inside? Come on, make your choice. No, no, no. We're to have both. But which of those two comes first? Righteousness on the inside. He called them to be concerned with both inner and outer righteousness, but to address first righteousness on the inside. True righteousness starts on the inside, at the core, as to what God has done in us and his work within us. Now, 7, starting at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You are like, Jesus says, like whitewashed tombs. Now, why would Jesus say such a thing? And who was out whitewashing tombs? Matter of fact, they did it quite commonly, and they did it quite commonly at the very time of year that Jesus was speaking. Remember, what time of year is it when Jesus is there? He's in there in the spring, right before the Feast of Passover. And before the Feast of Passover, in that day of Jesus's, it was common for them to go out and a tomb that might not be immediately recognized as a tomb, they would whitewash it with bright white paint so that all the pilgrims who were coming into Jerusalem would know, hey, that's a tomb, don't go near it, because if you touched a tomb, you became ceremonially unclean and you might be disqualified from celebrating the Passover. And so this is exactly what they would do. They would whitewash the tomb. And look at that tomb. It looks so pretty, doesn't it? Look, The wall is so white. It's got a beautiful coat of paint on it. But what's inside? Inside, death, corruption, and decay. And Jesus said that these religious leaders were like these whitewashed tombs. They were pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul used this same figure when he called the high priest a whitewashed wall in Acts chapter 23. But Jesus said, verse 28, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but God saw the truth. You know, God is never fooled by what we show on the outside. He sees us for what we actually are, not for what we appear to be to other men. Now, For the last woe, the eighth one, starting at verse 29. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood on the, shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Wow. You know, this is the last woe that Jesus pronounced. You could say that these were the last words he spoke about the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's almost he saved the the, the strongest words for the last. He said in verse 29, You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Now just picture that in your mind, right? Here's this prophet Oh, the tomb of the prophet so-and-so. Oh, what an honored prophet he was. Oh, we love this prophet. They professed to venerate dead prophets, but they rejected living prophets. And when they did this, they showed that they really were the children of those who murdered the prophets in the days of old when they said, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You know what, I think sometimes I've found myself expressing the same kind of thought. Have you ever thought this? I wouldn't have denied Jesus like those other disciples did. Oh yeah? I think very well I might have in those same circumstances. But Jesus said you do this. You honor the dead prophets, but you persecute the living ones. That's why he says in verse 32, and this may be the strongest thing that Jesus ever said to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Jesus prophesied about how these leaders would compete or complete the rejection of the prophets. Their fathers began by persecuting his disciples whom he would send to them. I'm going to send you my disciples. You're going to persecute them. And when you do that, when you persecute me, when you put me on the cross in doing these things, you will fill up the measure of guilt. Charles Spurgeon said this. This is one of the most terrible sentences that ever fell from Christ's lips. It is like his message to Judea, to Judas, that thou doest do quickly. This crowning sin would fill up the measure of their father's guilt and bring down upon them the righteous judgment of God. They killed the prophets, but he says to the Pharisees, that, but you buried them. And you were agreeing with them. So fill up the measure of their guilt. And then he says, verse 33, if he could get even more stronger, serpents brood of vipers. Do you understand what that phrase means? He says, you guys are the family of the devil. These religious leaders took a great pride in their heritage, thinking that they were spiritual sons of Abraham. Instead, They were more like sons of the devil, not like sons of Abraham. Now, 
Why did Jesus speak so strongly about these religious leaders? Well, again, I would say that he did it for two reasons. First of all, he did not want others to be deceived by them. Secondly, he loved these men. You see, these men were the farthest from God and they needed to be warned about the coming judgment. Listen, what did Jesus really want from these men? Do do you think that Jesus really wanted their judgment? What Jesus wanted was their repentance. And he had appealed to them time and time again, and they had rejected it. So Jesus now tells them in the strongest terms possible, warning them of the judgment to come, wanting their repentance, not their judgment. Now, one more thing before we go to this very dramatic end of the chapter. In verse 35, Jesus says, From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Here Jesus spoke of all the righteous martyrs of the Old Testament. Abel was clearly the first, right? Slain by his brother Cain. And Zechariah was the last. Now, maybe you don't think he was last chronologically, but in the way that the Hebrew Bible was arranged... Second Chronicles was the last book of the Hebrew Bible and the last martyr to be killed in Second Chronicles, you'll find it in Second Chronicles chapter 24, was Zechariah. And do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying from Genesis to Revelation, if you wanted to put it in our terms, from the beginning of your scriptures to the end of them, you've killed all those prophets. I also find it very interesting that Abel's blood cried out and Zechariah asked that his blood be remembered. You'll find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 22. Now, I have to say this. There is a problem with the description of Zechariah here in verse 35 as being the son of Berechiah. Because in the 2 Chronicles passage, it mentions him as being the son of a priest named Jehodiah. Well, how do you solve this? Well, there's a couple different solutions. First of all, we recognize that double names were not uncommon among the Jews. And so it's not unbelievable to think that the father of Zechariah could be called both Jehodiah and Berechiah. But there's another solution as well. The names Jehodiah and Berechiah have much the same meaning. They mean this, the praise or the blessing of Jehovah. So they mean virtually the same thing. So that's also another possible solution. But now, at verse 36, Jesus is done speaking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the multitude, his disciples. He's done with that speaking. And before he does that, you can almost feel his strong, his mighty indignation. But I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, And yet behind it all is his heart. And the woes merge into a wail of agony, the cry of a mother over her lost child. Listen, you've got to catch this verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, verse 41, tells us that Jesus wept as he looked over the city of Jerusalem and said these things. He thought about its coming judgment, and make no mistake upon it, the judgment that was to come upon Jerusalem some 40 years, not quite 40 years after Jesus said these words, was a terrible judgment. And Jesus wanted to protect them from this terrible judgment that would eventually follow their rejection of him. Do you understand that it's written that Jesus wept twice? He wept here when he grieved, when he wailed over Jerusalem as a mother would wail over her lost child. And he also wept at the tomb of Lazarus when he wept over the power of pain and pain of death. This heartfelt cry from Jesus is another way that we can see that that Jesus didn't hate these men he rebuked so strongly. His heart broke for them. And when we sin, God does not hate us. He genuinely sorrows for us. He knows that in every way, our sin, our rebellion, only destroys our life. And we should hope to share that same heart that God has, that same sorrow that God has over lost humanity. See what Jesus said in verse 37. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus wanted to protect and to nourish and to cherish his people, the Jews, even as a mother bird protects the young chicks. You know, the picture of a hen and her chicks tells us something about what Jesus wanted to do with these people who were rejecting him. He wanted to make them safe. Isn't that a safe place for a little chick? You could just picture it. What a vivid picture, is it not? The little chick's finding protection under the wings of the mother. It's a safe place. It's a happy place, right? You can almost hear the little chicks chirping, can't you? They're happy. He wanted to make them part of a blessed community. When you think of this chick under the wing of its mother, there's never just one, right? It's a whole little brood of them, and they're part of a blessed community. He wanted to promote their growth. Isn't that what the mother hen does? He wanted them to know his love, but it could only happen if they came to him when he called. By the way, let me just say this. Jesus' longing can only come from the person who's the savior of Israel, not merely a prophet. You couldn't think of Isaiah saying this, could you? You couldn't think of Jeremiah saying this. No, no, no. This belongs to the Savior alone. I find something else very interesting in verse 37, where it says, How often I wanted to gather your children together. Now he says this over what city? Over Jerusalem. How often I wanted to do this. This is a very subtle indication that Matthew knew that Jesus had visited Jerusalem many times before. Now we know that from reading the Gospel of John, right? If we had only read the Gospel of Matthew, you would think that the only time Jesus visited Matthew, visited Matthew, visited Jerusalem 
was when he came at this time, at the very end of his life. No, but Matthew knew that Jesus had visited Jerusalem several times before, as the Gospel of John tells us. But you also noted this in verse 37, did you not? Why didn't these chicks find shelter and comfort and community and happiness under the wings of Jesus? Why did they not? If I could be somewhat provocative, was it because they were not predestined? No, Jesus says it because you were not willing. The problem was not the willingness of Jesus to rescue and protect them. The problem was they were not willing. Therefore, the predicted destruction would come upon them. Again, what a picture of pity. What a picture of disappointed love must have been on Jesus' face. Tears pouring down his face when he says, You were not willing. I wanted to save you. I wanted to rescue you, but you were not willing. Very interesting. How do we reconcile this? I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this on this very verse. We hold tenaciously that salvation is all of grace, but we also believe with equal firmness that the ruin of man is entirely the result of his own sin. It is the will of God that saves. It is the will of man that damns. I like that. So what do you do? You need to be willing to come to Jesus. You need to come to him with a real will, with a practical doing will. You have to come to him with an immediate will. You have to come with him with a settled will, and Jesus will save you. Now, the last verse in our chapter, verse 39, Jesus said something very important in the whole prophetic picture. He said to Jerusalem, You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here revealed something of the conditions surrounding his second coming. When Jesus comes again, the Jewish people as a whole will welcome him as the Messiah, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you understand that? When Jesus comes back, it will not be to a Christ-rejecting Jewish people, but to a Christ-accepting Jewish people. And it will take a lot to bring Israel to that point, but God will do it. It is promised that Israel will welcome Jesus back, even as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. I believe that when Paul said that, he meant all Israel, not in the sense of necessarily each individual Jewish person, but as a whole. You would know Israel and the Jewish people as a Christ-accepting people, not a Christ-rejecting people. And doesn't that seem fantastic? Doesn't that seem too hard to believe? That the Jewish people, who, who by and large and sometimes through the violence and the bigotry of Christians have had good reason to reject Jesus. 
that they will be turned, they will be converted, they will be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. What possibly could bring them to that place? Jesus is going to talk about that in the chapter that we consider the next time we're together. Because in Matthew chapter 24, he's going to talk more about things having to do with the end times. Things more having to do with the last days. And that'll be for the last part that we get together with, or the, the, what we consider the next time we're together. Look, let me just close with this. As you think about how Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees, don't take the easy way out and say, those evil scribes and Pharisees. There's things in what Jesus said that speak to me and probably speak to you. Let's let the word of God speak to us. Father, that's our prayer. We don't want to quickly dismiss the challenges of this chapter by saying, oh, those terrible scribes and Pharisees. Lord, let me see, let us see where we are too much like them and where we share some of their same tendencies. Help us, Lord. Rescue us, Jesus. And most of all, make us willing to come to you. Willing, Lord, to find shelter under your wings. Thank you that you love us so much to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.